Thank you. So good. So good to be here. You may be seated. Um, if, if my skin looks a little red, we're not used to that, this much sun up in Manchester. So we've been here through the weekend enjoying the sun at South Sea and just the beautiful coast. You are blessed to live in Portsmouth. And, uh, and we're blessed to be here visiting with you. I've got my wife, Delena, and my four children with me, Jack, Ezra, Evie, and Jonas. And um, you, you have always received us with such hospitality and warmth, and thank you for that. You know, the last time I was in Portsmouth was as lockdown was beginning. And so I was here at Empower Conference in 2020, and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we're all watching the news cycles, and um, people are sort of canceling, coming to the conference, not sure if they're coming. And at dinner, Pastor Andy's saying, give it two weeks, it'll blow over, you know. And so I saw, I was talking to someone earlier, they said, you know, last time you were here is when lockdown began, I hope there's different results from you being here this time as well. I said, well, I hope so too. But anyway, it's a joy to be back here in Portsmouth. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Pastor Andy read a few verses from Acts 2, but we're going to go back to that same place in Scripture and read about the first Pentecost in the life of the early church. I say in the life of the early church because Acts 2 is not the first Pentecost in Scripture, though it is the first Pentecost in the life of the early church. And we're, kind of, we're going to consider that thought. So let's pray, we'll read this passage, and I want to introduce some ideas that we'll spend a few moments unpacking together so we can be more intentional about the way we receive the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for Scripture. Thank you, Father, for this gift from heaven. Lord, by your word, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our paths. We know, Lord, that through your word you bring life. Father, just as you did in Genesis chapter 1 when you said, let there be light and there was light, we want your word to create new things within us. Give definition to our lives through the power of your word. As it says in Hebrews, Lord, that all things are upheld by the power of your word, we know that our lives are sustained by and transformed by your word. So give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened. We want to have more than information today. We want revelation that brings transformation in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. Say, fully come. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning of the story, but that's where we're going to end for today. I mentioned a moment ago that Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, was the first event in the life of the church, but it was not the first Pentecost in Scripture. When the Bible uses the word Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it is referring to one of the pilgrim feasts within the life of Israel. 
When you go back to Leviticus chapter 23, you find a framework for what the Bible calls the feasts of the Lord. And there are seven major feasts, though if you include Sabbath as a weekly feast, there are actually eight. But we'll skip Sabbath for just a moment and look at the seven feasts in the life of Israel. They are sort of grouped together in interesting ways. The first three are grouped together in sort of one package. The middle one stands by itself. And then the last three are grouped together in their own package. And these three packages, the first three, the middle one, and the last three, they were all pilgrim feasts where the children of Israel would not just celebrate them in their homes all throughout the nation of Israel. The children of Israel would actually ascend to Jerusalem. That's why in just a moment, after the Holy Spirit is poured out and Peter stands up with the 11 and begins to preach, it talks about those who had gathered together at Jerusalem, heard the gospel preached in their own language. It was all of these Jews that were living outside of Jerusalem who had gathered to the city in order to observe observe and celebrate the feast of Pentecost. And because they had gathered together to observe that feast, they heard something fresh from God. It's amazing what happens when you obey what God said, it positions you for what God is saying. The Jews that first heard the gospel were the Jews that obeyed what God said in Leviticus 23 to gather in Jerusalem three times a year. What we don't realize about our disobedience is it gets us out of alignment with the present word of God in our lives. It's so important for you to stay attentive to the voice of God because what God said is preparing you for what God is saying. And what God is saying is preparing you for what God will say. We have to stay in rhythm with God by staying attentive to his word. So let's talk about these feasts. I'm not going to jump into all seven of them or even the three groupings, but I want to talk about them big picture because it really helps us understand the significance of what happened in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit didn't just show up any random day of the week. The Holy Spirit showed up on a specific day, and that day was Pentecost. So let's consider the Feast of Israel as it's mapped out in Leviticus 23, the Feast of the Lord. There are five basic ways to look at the feast. So we could look at them in probably more ways or shrink that down and combine some things. But what were the purpose of the Feast of the Lord in Israel? Well, number one, there was an agricultural significance to them. God, you know, established these feasts in order to keep Israel on track according to their agricultural cycles and rhythms in the land. So there's a very um, sort of pragmatic purpose, you know, it helped recognize all the agricultural seasons and how to interact with those. So there was an agricultural reason for the feast. There was also an economic reason for the feast. The children of Israel, when they gathered together at Jerusalem, they not only gathered, but they were commanded by God to bring in an offering. And those three pilgrims, Pilgrim feasts were were a part of God funding the ministry at the temple in Jerusalem. So there was an economic reason behind the feast. Not only that, one of my favorite reasons, number three, is that there were there was a pastoral rhythm. There was a pastoral reason why God established these seven major feasts in Israel. And it was sort of like, you know, a holiday on our calendar. That's the way it worked for the children of Israel. God established these feasts where they could do no customary work 
work in order to care for his people, in order to take care of them, in order to pastor them and make sure they were whole and well. That's why if you consider the eighth feast, which is actually the first, Sabbath, it was God's way of weekly pastoring his people, saying that you are not defined by what you do and you are not driven by what you can produce, but you are called to a place of rest in my presence where you can enjoy being with your family. God's heart is a pastoral heart, and it's amazing and beautiful that God was so intentional in the book of Leviticus that he wanted to make sure that they had a rhythm of rest. So that was the third purpose behind the Feast of Israel, is that they had a pastoral motivation behind them. The last two ones, though, the last two purposes, this is what we're really going to think about and focus on as we consider Acts chapter 2. The fourth reason is they had a historical purpose. Each of the feasts were connected to a historical event that happened in the life of Israel, within the nation of Israel. And God would tell them this throughout the law of Moses. He said, when you do this certain feast, it's going to cause your children to ask you the question, why are we doing this? And when they ask you, why are we doing this, you tell them the story of what I did. God knew that children were naturally curious. And that though as adults, we grow accustomed to doing things just because we do those things, children have a natural way of wondering why we do the things that we do. And so God said, do these things because your children are going to wonder about them and it will be an opportunity for testimony. It will be an opportunity to recount the past. So there was a historical reason each of the feasts were connected to a historical event that happened in the life of Israel. But one of the things that makes makes me most excited about the feast is that they were not just agricultural, economical, you know, pastoral and historical. The feast were also prophetic. They were pointing not only to something God did, but they were always pointing to something God was going to do. The Bible tells us that everything prior to Christ is a forerunner to Christ. It uses a little bit of a different language. But Jesus said this, I believe in John chapter 5. He said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for you think they contain eternal life. But the scriptures are they that which point to me. The scriptures are all pointing toward me. So within the feast of Israel, yes, we find historical realities remembered, but we also find future realities anticipated. We see that specifically and most clearly in the feast of Passover. So Passover had, you know, the first three reasons involved. It was rest, it was a pilgrim feast where they brought offerings. But of course we see its historical significance because it commemorates the day where the pass where the death angel passed over the children of Israel in Egypt. And how was that how did that happen? Because they put the blood of the lamb over their door. So the death that they deserved passed over them because the blood of the lamb was applied to their home. We see that historical reality commemorated in the Jewish feast of Passover. But when we get to the New Testament, at what feast was Jesus crucified? He was crucified at Passover. Why? Because in his death 
burial and resurrection, we see the prophetic fulfillment of what was happening in the historical feast of Passover because the death we deserve passes over us when the blood of the lamb is applied to our lives. But we don't really understand the significance of the cross unless we consider the reality of Passover. It's the historical reality of Passover that deepens our receptivity of, our understanding of, and our embrace of what Jesus did on the cross. And it adds to the meaning of what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1 when he points at Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we hear Lamb of God, we ought to hear Exodus 12, the Passover being implemented and instituted where God commanded each home to have their own lamb. And now they're saying this is God's provision for his house. He's providing the blood of the lamb for his people to call them in out of death into life. As it says in the book of Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've just found yourself sort of wandering into church. And this information, Pentecost and Pentecostal church, it's all rather confusing to you. Where do you start? You start at the gift of God for your life through Jesus Christ. You don't have to live in, under the wages of sin. It's death. But you can today receive the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Passover deepens our understanding of the cross of Jesus, which then gives us faith to embrace it and apply it in an entirely different way. And I want to suggest this morning that when we understand the Feast of Pentecost, it does the same thing with Acts chapter 2. When we considered what happened, then we can understand what is happening and what we can continue to walk in the work of God as a reality in our lives. So if Passover is about the moment where the death angel passed over their houses because of the blood of the lamb, what happened at the first Pentecost? Not the Acts 2 first Pentecost, but the Old Testament first Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Jews celebrated as the day that God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. The Jews celebrated as the day where they stepped into the Sinai covenant with God, where God writes on tablets of stone a law to govern them as a people. Now, as New Covenant Christians, sometimes we have a hard not hard, let me say it like this. We have a complicated relationship with the law because in a New Testament, New Covenant reality, reading backwards into the Bible through the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, our relationship with the law almost is very negative as though the law was bad or the law was, you know, the children of Israel misunderstanding God or the law is something God had to get rid of. But if you really digest the reality of the Old Testament, what you see is that the law was not despised by the Jewish people. The law was celebrated by the Jewish people. And the Apostle Paul carries that thinking over into the book of Romans and he says this, is the law evil? God forbid. He says the law is spiritual. I'm the one who's carnal, sold under sin. In other words, what Paul is saying is that there was not a problem with the law, there was a problem with my heart. 
It's not that God's commandments were too difficult. It's that my affections were too wayward. It is not that God had to rethink what he expected from human behavior. It's that human behavior needed to be transformed in order to embrace the commandments of God. So the Jewish people don't see the law as a burden to despise. They see it as a gift to celebrate. That's why it says, I believe, in Deuteronomy, God is speaking to them and he says, when all the nations around you look at you and you are walking in obedience to the commandments I gave you at Mount Sinai, they will say about you, who is a wise and great people such as this who walks in the wisdom of God? Later in the book of Psalms, the Jewish people are celebrating and they say, what, it, who, what other nation is like us who has a law like we do? You know, in Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States of America, when you go into Congress um, uh, where all the laws are developed for the land, there are historical figures, their faces in profile all around the room like this. And they're all kind of coming around to, to one figure. They're all coming, you see the sides of their face. Again, it's in profile, boo, 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 all around. But then right in front of the speaker of the house, there is one face that is not side, it's fully facing. That one face that's fully facing the speaker of the house is Moses. Because he's honored as the one through whom God revealed the need for law in human society. And there's a, there's, a, there's a godly reverence for the reference of Scripture that law is good. So at the day of Pentecost, what happens is the Jewish people celebrate the fact that God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. That Moses ascended to glory, and when he descended, he descended with something from God that would govern them as a people. So the role of the law was not, get, the role of the law was this. It was to take a people who belonged to God and to transform their character into the image of God. You see, at Passover, God claimed them as his own. But at Sinai, he gave them a governmental structure that would guide them and transform them and ultimately lead them to Christ. So Sinai, the first Pentecost, was about God bringing his government from heaven to the earth. It's about God bringing his leadership out of glory into their midst. It's about God giving them a way for his glory not just to be hovering above them, but for his glory to dwell among them in a tabernacle so that their entire lives, their entire rhythm could now revolve around his presence. If that's what happened at the first Pentecost, you got to know that's what happened and more at the Acts 2 Pentecost. You see, at the Acts 2 Pentecost, it is not just a dimension of God's presence filling the church. It is the government of God and the leadership of God coming down into his people and transforming them in a way that they can now walk in the character and the likeness of God. You see, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God claims us as his own. 
when we put our faith in Jesus and the blood is applied to our lives, the death angel passes over it and we belong to God. But at Pentecost, we don't just belong to God, we are now transformed into his image. We are now transformed into his likeness. We are now transformed into a people who carry his presence in a manifested way. You see, though, the difference between the first Pentecost and the Acts 2 Pentecost is this. The law God gave them at Sinai governed them, but had no real power to transform them. The law at Sinai was an external law that managed an inward behavior. And the law revealed a sin but had no power to remove or transform the person who was doing the sin. So that is the government model of the Old Testament. Manage sinful men and women who have wayward affections. But at the Acts 2 Pentecost, something different happened. What's the something different that happened? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 31 and explore what God promised he would do within the new covenant. So Jeremiah chapter 31, picking up at verse 31, we're going to read about a new covenant that God promises. Now, when we read about a new covenant, we ought to think about the Last Supper, where Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples, because as he's giving them the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Which, by the way, those words, this is the blood of the covenant, it was first spoken at Sinai. When Moses comes down with the law and their sacrifice is made, Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. And so Jesus is picking up on that theme and begins to indicate that the new covenant that was promised about in the prophets, it is now here, it is now inaugurated, and it is initiated. What is the DNA of the new covenant? What is the nature of the new covenant? Jeremiah prophesies this, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So in verse 32, he uses the Sinai covenant He says, the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. He's referring to that moment. He brought them out and brought them to Mount Sinai, and the law came down. He's using that as a reference point, but he's saying the new covenant, you can refer to that moment to understand what I'm talking about, but the new covenant won't be like that covenant because that covenant is one that they broke. That covenant, again, managed their external behavior, but it never transformed their heart. The moment Moses came down with the tablets, he throws them in anger and they're broken, which was a sign that their idolatry would break the covenant over and over and over again. So he's saying a new covenant is coming, but it's not going to be like the old covenant because the old covenant was broken from the moment I gave it to them. What's this new covenant going to look like? Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
What is God saying in verse 33? He's saying the new covenant won't be a law externally trying to manage affections that are wayward internally. He's saying the new covenant, its reality will be a transformation of the human heart. I'm going to get on the inside of you. I'm not going to give you a law out here and you've got to like, you know, suppress wayward affections in here. No, I'm going to get on the inside of you and I'm going to rewrite the very constitution of your heart. I'm going to get on the inside of you. I'm going to transform your desires. I'm going to write my law, not on a notepad and not on a wall. I'm going to write my law on your heart. And I'm going to put it in your mind, which this is fascinating. Because God told the children of Israel in the Old Testament, my law, I want you to keep it on your forehead. I want you to put it on the tassels of your robe. And they would get it as close as possible, but close was never close enough to transform their minds. And so God is saying in this new covenant, you're not going to have to try to keep it close. I'm going to put it so close you can't escape it because I'm going to put it on the inside of you. I'm going to write it on your law. I'm going to write it on your heart. And I'm going to put it in your mind. And now I'm going to transform you from the inside out. The old covenant was sin management from the outside in. The new covenant, it's transformation from the inside out. And when we get into the New Testament and start looking for this promise, we realize that it says explicitly that it is the Holy Spirit that brings this Jeremiah 31 promise into reality in our lives. That's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer says this, about the work of the Holy Spirit. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. So he's been talking about the priestly ministry of Jesus. Now he's talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He says, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us. For after he had said before. So the writer is saying there's something that God said before this moment. And the Holy Spirit is the one that witnesses to us that what he said back then is true now, today, for you as a believer. And this is what he quotes. Verse 16. He's quoting Jeremiah 31, what we just read. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. The book of Hebrews is telling us that when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the Jeremiah 31 promise became a reality. Now we are in a new covenant that transforms our very affections. It begins to renew our minds. It says in Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I love that language, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12 says, you know, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But Ephesians says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Why? Because the very atmosphere of your mind needs transformation. And that atmosphere is transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, I think this Jeremiah 31 reality may be the reason why they spoke with other tongues when the Holy Spirit showed up. Now, there are a lot of reasons they spoke with other tongues. Number one... It's, it, the power of the Spirit makes the gospel accessible to everyone. 
Because they preached the gospel in all of the languages that were represented. So that's part of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you function in the power of the Holy Spirit, you suddenly are empowered to make the gospel accessible to everyone you come across. It was also a reversal of what happened in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, what happened? Man united with wicked intent in his heart to build a tower as a statement of rebellion against God. What does God do? God scatters them through dividing their tongues. What does he do in Acts chapter 2? He regathers man by dividing their tongues. And he uses tongues not to push people away, but to bring them close. It's the power of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. So you've got lots of reasons why the Holy Spirit showed up, and they begin to speak with other tongues. But I think one of the reasons why it sh- the Holy Spirit showed up in that way is, again, because of the Jeremiah 31 reality. Now, how is tongues connected to Jeremiah chapter 31? Well, Jesus had said just a few chapters before Acts chapter 2, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And could it be the reason they spoke a heavenly language is because their hearts had finally been transformed. And now it wasn't just the spirit of man that filled them. It was the spirit of God that filled them. Could it be the reason that they begin to prophesy and preach and declare the works of God is because in that moment, God did in them what he promised he would do in Jeremiah 31. He suddenly wrote his law on their hearts. And what came out of their mouths was the abundance of his spirit that was now working within them. You see, the gospel is not, here's what God expects, work it out on on your own. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of transformation. It's an announcement of what God has done that brings the forgiveness of sins, and it's a gospel of transformation. Way too often we stop at making the gospel merely an announcement of forgiveness, and we forget that it's also an announcement of transformation. You see, the Holy Spirit is not a side item to the entree of the gospel. The Holy Spirit was a part of the promise the whole time. Because it's by the Spirit your heart is transformed. In the the cross of Jesus, we see the removal of sin. Read Romans chapter 6. That's how the Apostle Paul deals with a, a, a revelation of the cross. In Jesus, the body of sin is done away with. But in the Spirit, we see not just the removal of sin, we find the planting of new desires. We find the transformation of the human soul. We find God's government coming from glory and filling our hearts in a way that we become transformed into his very image. You know, when the Apostle Paul is describing why Jesus died on the cross, he doesn't just say to save you from hell and then leave the Holy Spirit as, you know, optional material for those that are just like really wild and crazy. No, he talks about the Spirit in the same breath that he talks about the work of Jesus on the cross. This this is Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why did Christ do that? Number one, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That's a whole world of thought all by itself. But here's the second half, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. 
Why did Jesus die on the cross? To cleanse you by his blood so you could be prepared to receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, God is always preparing the way for God. God came in the Old Testament with the law at Sinai. Why? Because the law was preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus came and died, was buried, and was resurrected, ascended to heaven. Why? So he could prepare the way for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is here with us now. Why? Because the Spirit and the bride say, come, and he is preparing the way for Jesus to return to the earth. And the Bible says that when Jesus has ruled and reigned, and he's put down, he has put down every enemy, the last enemy being death, then he will hand the kingdom back to the Father so that God may be all in all. God is always preparing the way for God. The way you prepare the way of the Lord is by allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your life today, making you a vessel that carries his image and someone that longs for the return of Jesus. Have you known this Holy Ghost? Have you known the Pentecostal Holy Spirit? Not just the spirit of gifts, not just the spirit of presence, but the spirit of God that brings transformation to your heart. And that's why a moment ago in Acts chapter 2, we said when the day of Pentecost had fully come. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, Passover had fully come. Why? Because what was implemented in Exodus 12 was only a partial implementation It was a partial coming of Passover. When we get to the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that Passover has fully come in the person of Jesus. And when we get to Acts chapter 2, and it says the day of Pentecost, it had fully come. What is it saying? What began way back at Sinai, partially, what began way back in the children of Israel, was only a beginning. Now the fullness is here, and the fullness is God himself transforming our desires to make us like him. I'm going to ask a musicians to join me. And just before you stand, I just want to kind of end here on a very personal note. I know what it's like to feel helpless and hopeless managing an internal world that feels antagonistic toward God. I know what it's like to feel helpless and hopeless managing an internal world that feels like it will never be free from the grip of sin. I know what it's like to live in cycles of addiction where you, you, know, you, you don't like where you are, you don't like what you're doing, and you promise God never again, only to find yourself doing that never again thing within a day or three days or five days or maybe a month. I know what it's like to live in the cycles of sin and to feel like there's no way out and to love God but know that there's things about your life that are displeasing to God. And what I want to tell you today is that by the power of the Holy Spirit... God can rewrite not just your story, the story of your past. God can rewrite the desires of your present. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the book of Philippians. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And most of us stop there. Actually, most of us just stop with work out your own salvation. And we use it as a phrase to mean make up your own rules and that's fine. But he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I rarely hear that phrase quoted. 
you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that's not the end of the statement. He goes on the next verse to say this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. What is the Apostle Paul saying? You work out of you what God is working in you. Discipleship is not trying to obey God in your own strength. Discipleship is partnering with the grace of God that is already working inside of your life. And it's surrender to the Holy Spirit that's already writing the commandments of God on your heart. And today is a fresh opportunity to say, Holy Spirit, fill me, af- fill me afresh in a way that my internal world changes. I don't want to just try to manage sin from the outside in. But Lord, I want to be changed from the inside out. New desires, new affection, new story filling my internal world. Would you stand on your feet with me? I want to pray and then hand this over to Pastor Andy. We may just see where it goes from there, whatever we want to do, Pastor Andy. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. So, Father, right here, we say yes to you. Right here in this place, we say that our minds... And our hearts are open. We want you, Lord. We want you, Lord. We want you, Lord. Just stay right there in a place with your, with your eyes upon the Lord. This morning, as you're here in the room, maybe you're in a place where you just need a fresh level of transformation on the inside. I want to invite you to to respond and to come to this altar space because we want to pray with you. Maybe there's something in your life that you really want agreement in prayer. You just need a fresh encounter with God, fresh influence of the Holy Spirit. I want to let you know that this altar is open and we'll have to pray with you. So Father, right now, as we're here in this place with our attention upon you, our eyes upon you, Lord, we say do something in us that we can't do for ourselves. Come on. I thought there may be people battling addictions today and you just, you you, you feel exasperated. You feel just at the end of yourself because you're like, I I don't know where else to go. I don't know what else to do. I've done the programs. I've done the, I've done all this stuff and nothing's changing. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the influence of the Holy Spirit wants to come in and change your heart change your internal world hey thank you father there are people here today that there are sexual addictions for some it's substance abuse others it's sexual addictions you're so entangled you don't know how to get out of it you feel as though your willpower is gone and there's no way for you to actually believe things can be different for those that are bound by sexual addictions the Holy Spirit wants to rewrite your story today your internal story where some of you you have pornographic images seared into your mind what does God say in Jeremiah 31 that he'll put his law in your mind so it's not the images of pornography that govern you 
It is the commandments of God that govern you. So, Father, we release that now in the name of Jesus. If you would, lift your hands right where you are. Father, right now, I declare the power of the Spirit in this room. Transformed hearts, transformed minds. Thank you, God. You are a gracious God. You don't just yell commandments from heaven and then leave us on our own to sort it out. But God, you come and you not only walk beside us, you get on the inside of us, God. You get closer than we could ever imagine and you work from the inside out. I declare that in Jesus' name. As the team leads us in worship for the next few moments, I want to encourage you to use these words not just as a song, but to use it as a prayer to say, Holy Spirit, you are here. Welcome in my internal house. You're welcome in my heart. You're welcome in my mind. Do something fresh and new in me that changes me from the inside out, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.